I'm Brian Lowry, a professor of organizational behavior at the Stanford Graduate School of Business. And this is Leadership for Society, a series of conversations that focuses on the most pressing issues of today. This fall, we're talking about race and power. The 2020 presidential election in the United States was a historic moment. But what does it mean to make history? Has the narrative of this country really changed? Is it the same for everyone across racial and political divides? History can be subjective, but I think in the past has been written maybe by the winners and not necessarily by everyone that's in the story. The students and I decided to turn to two very accomplished historians, Dr. Spencer Crew, the interim director of the Smithsonian National Museum of African American History and Culture, and Professor Clay Carson, Professor Emeritus of History at Stanford, the director of the King Papers, and the director of the Martin Luther King Jr. Research and Education Institute. We dove right into a conversation about the nature of history. I wanted to start by thinking about what's going on in the country right now. In particular, we just had an election. We presumably have elected the first African-American woman into the vice presidency. And so I'm curious what you all think about this first. There's been a lot of attention paid to first as markers of history or change. And I'd love to hear what you think as historians about that. Clearly, it is a historic moment. Uh, and I think it sort of marks a clear, different way of seeing things for the moment. Um, I'm sort of waiting and marking time. Um, we had a moment previously where we had an African-American president and we thought that might portend something really different. Uh, and it didn't always work out the way we expected. So I'm optimistic and hopeful, but I tend to be very uh, careful about making pronouncements early on in the conversation. I think she's gonna be, uh, do a great job. I just hope she's allowed to do a great job. As a historian, I'm always skeptical about uh, the future of American history. Uh, it, there's a lot of pessimism that has built up from the past. And I, I, I would agree with, with Spencer that um, the, the optimism that we sometimes have after uh, historic events like the election of Barack Obama uh, sometimes doesn't uh, match the, the realism that uh, 70 million people looked at the administration of Donald Trump and decided we want four more years of that. And uh, I, th I think that that sends us a message that, uh, that this uh, uh, divide that's in the country is not over, just as the Civil War uh, didn't get over. You know, it, it, uh, the South lost, but it ultimately it won the, the battles that came after that. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, so I think that we need to be very careful about over-optimism, but look, there could have been worse. The sun came out this morning and, and that, that was nice. Mm -hmm. So if it's not first, which I think gets a lot of attention, right? The first African-American president, the first this, the first that. If it's not that, what should we look for we want to, when we want to see if history is turning? You know, in every election, white America has chosen the more conservative candidate. So the result of the exclusion of black Americans from the political process would have been 14 straight elections 
It's only the change in demographics right, right. of the electorate that has made made the difference. So, uh, so I think that that's that's the problem. It's not it's not this external problem of you know all all the different candidates. It doesn't matter what the candidate is. The problem is that we have that that basic desire of Americans, white Americans, to say, we want more of the same. We want, we want what we've been used to. And until that reality is dealt with, I don't think we're gonna change as a nation. I would agree with that. Um, I think the other component I would add to that is um, there is control and power in their hands so uh, things won't change until we can begin to shift that power equation. And I think the demographics is an important uh, pathway to that. Um, I had hoped that that would have more impact a lot, a lot sooner than it hasn't. So I think what we're gonna have to watch for is how that demographic shift begins to affect policies and begins to affect how um, um, the balance of power comes to fruition in, in the country. Um, I have to say I was uh, hopeful a bit with uh, Biden's uh, speech when he recognized that uh, African-Americans and black women were the ones that got him over the top. Now, the key is, will he remember that? Will that be uh, reflected in his policies? And is that something we can sustain for the long haul as opposed to a short moment in time? Right, so there's been a shift in how people think and talk about race, but at the same time, when you look at the majority of whites, at least the way they vote, that, that has, hasn't shifted to the same extent. Like, how do you think about that as a historian? Um, Spencer, you wanna jump in there first? Uh, I, I like to look at the long view. And I think part of the long view is how sustained is that shift? Uh, I worry that uh, it is sort of the thing of the moment. And I, I am worried that um, the attention of individuals shift very quickly and can shift from one thing to another. And for me, the question is whether or not that's gonna be a sustained perspective or will there be something else that comes along that gets people's attention and they wanna set aside uh, this issue of the moment. I think it's much more basic than simply becoming more aware of the problems that um, black Americans face. But I think it's the, the essential problem is white Americans need to understand that their interest coincides with the interests of black people. You know, it's been analyzed by political scientists. Why do poor whites vote against their self-interest? Why do white Americans who go to their local county health center vote against Obamacare? Why do people who would benefit from coalition with progressive blacks, turn away from it. That's what King was talking about at you know at the end of the Selma to Montgomery march. He talked about how many poor whites in the South feed their hungry kids the stale bread of racism. No matter how poor you are, how much you could use the right to have uh, health care for your children. You reject it in favor of racial privilege. 
you know, we, we might be poor, but we're white. And as long as that suffices, you know, we, we've got a problem in this country. Mm -hmm. So I think what you're both pointing to is the importance of um, symbolism in terms of how people experience themselves and their position in the world as separate from their material condition, right? Like if it's helping me with my health care or in terms of my ability to feed my kids, that's separate from how does it make me think about who I am in this in this country, in this context, right? That symbolism. And so I want to turn to that and talk a bit about uh, historic symbolism. So right now, Stanford, something um, recently came out from the president that we are going to change the name of Jordan Hall and move the statue of uh, Louis Agassiz. So that is just one small thing that's happening around the country with the movement of Confederate monuments. And I'm curious how you all think about that as his historians, right? So we are, these are, they're part of our history. And a lot of people would say it that way. Why are we tearing down our history? Why are we moving our history? How should we think about what we're doing there? What we're doing at the university, what we're doing around the country right now? I think it's a, a bit of a complicated conversation to a degree. Uh, my perspective is that, uh, History is important to understand and to remember. The question is, how do you go about doing that? And do you take these statues that are in very public places where people are forced to confront them? Or do you create spaces where you can sort of uh, place them and create conversations and learning around them so that people can get that history, but they get it in a, in a space that's been set aside for doing that? I am worried and, and bothered by statues that are in spaces that are supported by public funds. So for me, it's finding that balance that the history is not lost because if we lose the history, we could have problems later on, but you don't want to force people to have to confront something that's painful for them uh, in, in, a, in a public space. I'm not surprised that, uh, that someone who works with the Museum to Preserve History would, would favor preserving history. <laughs> <laughs> I, most people who favor removing statues are looking at the motivation that led to the statue in the first place. Now, these statues, Civil War statues, were not created, uh, most of them were not created after the Civil War. They were created at a time when Jim Crow was being implemented in the South. You know, the, a lot of these uh, efforts to uh, create these memorials were specifically designed to say, you may think that things have changed since the Civil War, but we're here to remind you that things haven't changed. And so it was that motivation. Why did people in Selma want to create in 2001 a memorial to a Confederate general who was guilty of war crimes, who was among the founders of the KKK. And what does that represent? What message is that sending to your fellow citizens of Selma? And why don't you care about that? That's the issue. It's not, it's not the question of whether we have memorials. I, I love memorials. I love history. I, I wanna know the good and the bad of history. Uh, but it's, it, but you have to think about why are you doing this? What is the purpose? 
And 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 I think as Spencer knows, you know, that's that's a central issue for museums itself. You know, part of the reason why we have museums is that the imperialist countries of Europe wanted to bring back their loot in order to show off that they now are the people who run the world. And, you know, so that, what is the motivation is important. And what would you tell people who feel like their, their history or culture is being taken away from them? So, I mean, that is, that is the obvious argument, right? That's the argument that people make about preserving them, keeping them where they are. I understand it's easy if the argument is they are doing that in a deliberate attempt to um, subordinate some other group or to demonstrate their supremacy, right? But presumably there's some number of people where that is not the primary motivation. They really do feel like it's a part of their heritage that's valuable and important to them. What would you tell those people? I would say look closely at it. I mean, I think all of us recognize that we're, we're the survivors from the past. I'm living in Palo Alto. You know, I, I understand that uh, I'm probably living on the tops of the graves of the lonely uh, people who no longer exist as a people. You know, so look, all of us are the people who have survived the past. The rest, the rest are gone. And there have been lots of genocides in history. I would hope that I would be self-conscious and, and at Stanford, that is one of the discussions that is going on of whether to name a dorm after one of the colonizers who wiped out the native people here. These are discussions that need to happen. And I, I would hope that if one of the oppressors were, was a black man, that I would understand that conversation. Uh, on, on, uh, we have not had a, a lot of opportunities to be the oppressors in the world. But uh, if one of those accidents of history happened, you know, I, I would hope that I would, I would be able to understand the sensitivities of the people who got wiped out. I think it's also important to have a full picture of that culture, a full picture of that individual. That's very often what we tend to do is to highlight what we think are the heroic aspects of that individual and to elevate them to a level of almost uh, worship. It is true that all of us have shortcomings uh, and it's important that those are all made plain so that as if one is talking about preserving their, their history, their culture, they need to be thinking about the full array of things connected with that as opposed to taking slices of it and elevating that as the thing to be remembered. Mm -hmm. I mean, it seems to me that people often learn about artifacts, right? So we're talking about kind of artifacts of history, what's been produced, memorialize it. They often learn about those things without context, right? So one of my students that um, told me when we were preparing for this, that she learned some songs that were sung by slaves but didn't know the context in which they were sung. Like she had, in school, she and her classmates learned them and they didn't really tell them much about the context. And they, they thought they were happy songs, right? They didn't know where they were from. And so as we think of these things that right now, it sounds like we're talking a lot about artifacts, but really it seems to me what we're talking about are the narratives around those artifacts. Like what do they mean? How do, they, how do we experience them? What do they tell us about ourselves? And so I guess, 
the question for me in this is not about the, the symbols, but what or who rather gets to create the narrative around those symbols. So right, what you all are, are talking about is some objective reality around what they mean. But I could, I could argue that there's only the construction around what they mean, the narratives put around them. And then there's a question about who gets to create that narrative. So it could be that what's really happening is that people are upset, but not about the statues, but about the idea that somebody else is getting to create the narrative around those statues. Should there be a single narrative? Um, in, in my business in the museum, what we talk about with artifacts is their provenance. And what is it about that object that makes it important? And what we've always argued to a great degree is, so what moment in time and existence of that object are you highlighting? And are, in talking about provenance, are you deciding that because it was associated with someone of notoriety, that that's what makes it important? Or is there another aspect in its life when it is also important to someone who's not as, a, uh, as noteworthy, but it's still an important aspect of what it stands for? A great example of it is there is a, um, a rock in one of our exhibits that had been located in a town uh, nearby Fredericksburg that had been celebrated for years and years there because Andrew Jackson had given a speech standing on that rock. Well, that's one thing you can think about. Well, the other issue with that is that it actually turned out to be a slave block and that uh, lots of families were broken apart and sold on that same block. So what's its provenance? What is the history that you want to highlight with it? Or do you have to really share a much more complex story that goes with this? And I think for me, that's the challenge is that we tend to try to avoid complexity. We try to simplify our sense of things. And it's the complexity of them that is important for us to have to grapple with. I couldn't agree more. I mean, that's, that's the business of historians and people who work in museums, you know, trying to tell a story. We want context. We want to know why is this important for us to know. And, and I think that one of the things that has been um, part of the changes that have gone on in the United States, I, I don't want to give a lot of credit to historians because I, you know, a lot of that, we're not, we don't write bestsellers typically. But I think that there has been a shift in terms of an understanding of American history. I mean, just, just the notion that Martin Luther King is a national holiday, that is a shift. And that uh, Columbus Day is going away gradually. Right. Uh, no holiday has existed forever. It had to come into existence because uh, people felt that it was, it was necessary. So these things change over time. I mean, one of the reasons why many of us became historians is because we read history books and we said, that's wrong. You know, that's, that's not the right story. Somehow this guy got it wrong. Even though they might've won a Pulitzer Prize, they got it wrong. And uh, that becomes the motivation for you becoming a historian. It's a continuing process. Yes. And we, we look at things through a different lenses as, as time goes on. Too often people see history as facts that are uh, fixed. And once you have that fact, that's how it is. And I think what we understand in our own work is that uh, those things change. 
and a natural part of the process is gaining new information, new perspectives, and allowing that to continue to blossom and to have greater richness to it. I think that's what keeps us as historians excited and involved, but it's something we have a harder time translating to the larger public. You still have individuals who believe that there is one set of facts and those are the facts forever. Uh, and our, our, our task is to help them understand that that's not in fact the case. And what makes history interesting is it's constant revelations that we can uh, um, gain through our work and through our research. I give you all a lot of credit. And I also, in some part, <laughs> give you all responsibility for someone like Trump. So let me, let me break, break that down. So I think that um, it is true there's been a shift in how, how people have thought about the past, just in, at least in this country. And you could argue that part of what's happened with Trump, and there's obviously many arguments about what happened there, but um, it's a counter reaction to the shift that were taking place, right? That people were unhappy with the changing narrative about what this country is and should be, and that people were responding to that, that people are responding to that. And you get things like, a pushback against removing statues that were certainly put up long after the Civil War as a, a part of the retrenchment of white superiority. You get things like voting for um, someone who you know takes children away from immigrants um, in this country. And I guess you could argue that is in part a reflection of the power of a shifting narrative. But what I wanted to ask you about that is what do you do about that reactionary response as historians? One of the things that, that I would suggest is that we try to understand the 70 million people who voted for Trump. Why do people vote against their economic interests? What do they get in compensation? And political scientists have tried to understand that, historians have tried to understand that. Anyone involved in progressive movements knows that you, know, you can present a rational argument about how you would benefit from free healthcare. And the person will look you blankly in the place and say, I don't feel that I'm going to benefit from that. that or that there's something else that is more important to me than free healthcare. And you have to get drilled down and say, well, what is it that is more important to you? Is it a um, economic ideology? Maybe it is. Uh, my own guess is that it, it's, most people are not economists. They, it's something more basic than that. And that gets to that, what King was raising about the wages of whiteness. What benefits, what psychic benefits do you get? And we have to understand that. And I, and I think I understand something about those psychic benefits. Uh, a sense of freedom, self-sufficiency, you know, a lot of values that are important. Until we understand why it is that a president can essentially deliver for the super rich and be seen as a populist. Until we understand that, I think we'll have more Trumps. 
because they're, they're not uncommon in American history. I've studied a lot about the period after the Civil War, you know, uh, particularly in the late 19th century, the 1880s and 1890s, when workers in this country were very discontented. There was union movements, populist movements, the populist party. What happened to that? How, how did that become the rise of the Jim Crow era? Why did we not have a strong labor movement like in Europe, which led to you know, uh, universal medical care, which led to so many of the, the kinds of reforms that happened there, but not here. And a lot of that was that at a certain point, it became easier for people to put their faith in um, policies that benefited the rich, uh, that ignored the problems of poor white Americans. That period really set us on this present course. Why did, why did the South resurrect a Jim Crow system? There was other options that were open then. <laughs> and, and the Populist Party was one of those options. Uh, why did it get grounded in, in racial conflict? You know, so, so I think until we can kind of understand the missed possibilities of American history, we might miss this possibility. So when we think about history, often we talk about it as making sense of the past and other people's history. But I'm, I'm going to talk about it a little bit differently. So history really is a reading of ourselves. So history as making sense of the world we live in and in that way, placing or locating ourselves in a particular way, right? So what does it mean for me um, to be a black man in this country given the history of black folks in this country, right? So when I read history, I learn something about how to make sense of my own experience, who I am, what makes me worthy, et cetera. When you think about the history that we're trying to present for Trump voters, like where does that leave them, right? What if they accept the history that you are presenting, right? What where is their sense of worth come from? What does it mean to have succeeded in a world that is driven by white supremacy? What does it mean to have failed in a world driven by white supremacy? How do you understand your experience in this country as a white person? You could argue there's a negative response to that and that people are just rejecting that narrative because it doesn't feel good, right? And they're willing to pay a price to reject that narrative because it's self-protected. Does that resonate? Can, if that is, and if it does, what would you tell that person? We live in a precarious world. Everybody, uh, maybe not the super rich, but you know, everybody else <laughs> uh, is living in a precarious world where things can go badly. And, and the pandemic has reinforced that notion. You know, when I look at that map of the Trump vote, the Biden vote, it's a map of different kinds of, of, of life. We sometimes forget that the Biden people are the winners, not the losers. That should allow us to have some empathy for that 70 million people. Look, it's hard to have empathy for people who I, I think sometimes vote for racist reasons, 
but I can kind of understand why they felt left out. I mean, when they turn on the television, black people are Obama, LeBron James, uh, you know, all the entertainment celebrities. They don't feel sorry for them, but that's, that's the image. And then the other side of the image, of course, are the, the people who are looting stores and you know, that sort exactly, of thing. Exactly, yeah, yeah. But, but, I, but I think that the notion of empathy works both ways. Right. We have to have some empathy for those who live precarious lives, lives and why they want some security. I agree very strongly with what you were saying. Uh, and it struck me over the weekend as you listen to, um, especially Biden beginning to speak, that's what he, he's trying to speak to, trying to find a, a places of connection between groups that have been at odds and trying to find um, ways of addressing those issues. Um, the hope is that people are willing to listen. People are willing to see that there may be ways in which you don't disagree agree on everything, but there are places where there are connections that can work to help people feel more part of what's going on, to feel uh, their issues are being thought about uh, as, as policies are being created. Um, I, I'm hopeful for that. Um, and um, as I said earlier on, I'm sort of in a, I need to wait and see how this unfolds. I'm probably a little bit more pessimistic than you are about others uh, coming to recognize that and um, instead the resentment um, being so strong that they can't get past that. But I'm hopeful that maybe that can happen. It seems to me that maybe the Democrats are um, confused about what uh, 70 million people that voted for Trump want. Right, they're like how there are a lot of liberals that are like, look at these people voting against their self-interest, and I, I'd agree with Clay. A lot of those people are the winners are comfortable, are comfortable, and maybe what those people want, and maybe what they need, and and maybe a reasonable thing to ask for is a narrative that allows them a sense of self-respect and self-worth, right? That maybe people are willing when when they don't have that to pay for that in, in economic terms. They may not see it that way, but that's what their behavior suggests. And it, it's hard for the winners to understand that because we already have that by virtue of being winners, right? That we don't have to make a trade-off between a material and a narrative of self-worth for many people. And so it, if that's true, like what, what narrative would you give those voters, right? So they can feel a part of what's going on, not just policies that give them material things, but a narrative that lets them feel like they are a positive addition to what this country can be and, and from your perspective should be. I, I guess in my own mind's eye, what I'm thinking about is um, ways of getting people to understand the commonality of their existence here and in that commonality to find places where working collaboratively can work to the benefit of all those who are involved in that um, endeavor. And um, by showing examples of when those collaborations happen, that you can see forward motion 
you can see a, a benefit to um, more people and, and more of those individuals as a consequence of those choices. Uh, so I guess my narrative would be one of understanding that commonality and how those collaborations can allow a wider variety of people to feel valued and to feel contributors and feel a part of the history and the growth and the future of the nation. When I checked in with the students after the conversation, they thought that the question of why people might vote against their self-interest was key to understanding this moment. Perhaps what's really going on between the Biden voters and the Trump voters is a fight over narratives, a fight over who we are as a people and as a nation. Maybe what people are fighting about right now is identity in some deep, deep way. When you think about it this way, it's not strange at all that people would vote against what you or I perceive to be their economic interests. If you feel you have a community and you have a way of making your way through the world that is sensible and orderly for you and brings you comfort, that might be a lot more comfortable for you than having marginally better health care. You've been listening to Leadership for Society, Race and Power, the podcast series. This show is produced by Stanford Graduate School of Business, and our theme music is composed by Belief. For more episodes in this series, make sure to subscribe to the Leadership for Society podcast.